time we find ourselves here back in the throne on the retreat our life going on as it does and to reflect a little bit upon what it means to be here to be alive to find ourselves as we are somewhat remarkably suspended between birth and death in this process that we call life in this unfoldment of experience which we have the opportunity to explore as we are doing here a condition which we enter into somewhat unasking and that probably most of us weren't aware of having decided to take birth and that we depart from probably again without asking and for the vast majority with no real sense of when that might be the only certainty in our life is that at some point it ends and we don't know when that is but this very life itself raises so many questions it seems or can do for us but when we stop when we're not so busy when we're not so frantic in our pursuit of one thing or our attempt to avoid something else sometimes we feel ourselves touched by or drawn towards the deeper questions of our life and thus the whole sense of what it is or what it might be for us to find a sense of authenticity of meaning of truth in our life as it is so I'd like to read a poem that I think expresses some of this rather well by Mary Oliver called The Summer Day Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean the one who has flung herself out of the grass the one who is eating sugar out of my hand Who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down? who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face now she snaps her wings open and floats away I don't know exactly what a prayer is I do, I do know how to pay attention how to fall down into the grass how to kneel down in the grass how to be idle and blessed how to stroll through the fields which is what I have been doing all day tell me what else should I have done doesn't everything die at last and too soon tell me what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life
what are you going to do with your one wild and precious life? There's something both beautiful and rather scary about being invited to really enter that question wholeheartedly. Being on retreat here as we are in the solitude, in the silence, in the sustained spiritual discipline of meditation practice, we begin to see, we begin to sense, we begin to feel our life more deeply, more vividly, more directly and immediately than perhaps we do much of the time in our lives. This can be remarkably challenging for us to actually face our life, to become, as it were, rather naked in the light of our own consciousness, to see it as it is. And one of the things that we see is that it's actually quite hard, isn't it? Not just meditation, which can be quite hard, or being on a retreat, which can be quite hard, but in fact life. It's quite hard, at least some of the time, it would seem. Things are not the way we want them to be on a meditation retreat, and equally in our lives. Sometimes they are, that's nice, you can enjoy that, but it doesn't always last quite as long as we had hoped it would. And there's something both uncomfortable and really important in the fact that on retreat we can't avoid seeing this reality. This is not an accident that to some extent entering into retreat it's like making a commitment to the truth of our life and the form of the retreat really supports us in that challenging as the process can be to actually see it the way it is in our life it's so easy to distract distract ourselves or entertain ourselves or just dull ourselves out in such a way if we don't really see, we don't really feel We don't really sense the core of what is going on for us. And on a more surface level, we can live in a kind of idealised or fantasy sort of hopefulness where we're seeking satisfaction through trying to reorganise or rearrange the world or our lives in order to maximise our capacity to experience pleasure, sounds good, and to avoid pain sounds even better. And this process can seem to consume our life. The process of trying to reorganise things, other people, situations, reorganise ourselves, it's a little trickier, so as to maximise our experience of pleasure and to minimise our experience of pain. Now, There's a certain place for that, to a degree. And yet, if we're doing it in the belief that somehow we're going to really find satisfaction through that process, then we are 
worshipping what could be called a false god. Because the, the hope and the promise of getting satisfaction through that process, which is very much the hope that is presented to us by our world, by our culture, by so many voices around us and even within us, is ultimately an empty promise. Because it depends and rests upon our ability to control our experience, to make it the way we want it, to bring towards us and to keep those things that we enjoy, to get rid of and to avoid those things that we find difficult. But we can't. It doesn't seem to work that way. And this seems like bad news at first. It's not really. It's actually good news. But to see for ourselves how it is in our experience. That's what's going on here. Nothing goes on on a retreat that doesn't happen in our life. But what happens on a retreat is we see it more clearly. Sometimes we don't like that and we'd rather not see it. And that's alright, I guess. If we wish to have our head in the sand, we can make that choice. But that doesn't really make the discontent and the suffering go away. It just makes it go underground and we experience it nonetheless, but remain rather confused as to why it is. We don't feel at ease or at peace. This isn't just really a theory or an idea. It's actually something we can explore in our experience. To look and see how able we are to control things the things that really matter to us, like how our body feels. It really makes a big difference to how good we feel, it would seem, doesn't it? If our body feels comfortable, warm, relaxed, no pain, oh, things would be good, wouldn't they? But this doesn't seem to happen the way we want it. The weather isn't in our control, nor is the heating system at Guy House. I'm not sure if that's in anyone's control. And we'd all like to be comfortable. Why not, if we could be? But we aren't, a significant amount of the time. The food is just what it is. We might like it, we might not. There might be as much as we want, there might not. And we're kind of used to living in a way in which we kind of focus more on manipulating the external things around us the people and situations and experiences we have contact with, as a way of trying to somehow create a constant stream of enjoyableness and ease, and hoping that somehow in that we'll find peace, be able to relax. But, in fact, our mind is involved in all of this. And we see on retreat how important our mind is to our well-being. How the condition of our mind is truly dear to our heart. And yet remarkably independent from our intentions. We say, be present. Watch the breath. Be mindful. Be equanimous. What does the mind do? It wanders here and there. Generates fantasies. It reacts to this and to that. Kind of embarrassing, kind of humbling, in a useful way. A useful humility comes 
when we realize that our mind is not in our control. And yet, sometimes we insist on believing that we really can get things the way we want them, that we really can make it be the way I want it to be, having completely forgotten that everybody else wants it differently. And it's it's really highly unlikely that we're going to be the only one who gets it our way, and everyone else who doesn't want it that way is going to put up with it. And that's just one expression of that condition. It's like we tell ourselves a story sometimes, or we tell it to each other. It gives an illusion of satisfaction without the genuine article. I had a very clear exposure to this. Quite young, I guess, in some ways, I felt feel quite fortunate for this <coughs> kind of experience growing up in New Zealand in a small, very conservative country town where the basic forms of entertainment were playing rugby and drinking beer. Probably not that different to other places in the world, certainly in England. Um, and after, I guess, you know, going through the various teenage angst and confusion that one does, I actually thought I was really quite content with this, you know. I had a group of friends, sort of knew what to do on Saturday, play rugby during the day, get drunk in the evening, you know, sort of kind of like life was working itself out. And then something in me started to notice what actually went on and what we were doing together. And what I observed, I was doing this as much as anyone else, was that we spent a remarkable amount of time telling ourselves what a great time we had the last time we did this. What a great time we were going to have the next time we did this. But when I actually stopped and looked at the bit in between there, like what we were actually doing right now, was that I wasn't enjoying it at all. And the fact that everyone spent so much time telling each other, including me, how good it was the last time and how great it would be the next time, led me to suspect that perhaps the others weren't enjoying it quite as much as we all appeared to. Now, I don't know, I never actually asked them anything quite that um, direct and I never really conceived it that directly for myself but there's something in the way in which we we kind of have a collective story that we tell each other that actually it's not so bad, it wasn't too bad you know, there was some difficult stuff but keep on the way we're going and we're going we're gonna to be okay we're going to you know, have some more fun but, but there's something missing in all of that that kind of entertainment, distraction, intoxication. And we can be just as intoxicated through television, through alcohol. This is a story, one of my favourites, I often tell this one, of a Sufi figure, Mullah Nasruddin, who is both a wise man and a fool although one suspects his foolishness is simply to wake us up to our own. And one day, Nazareth was found by some of his friends in the corner of the village square on market day with a large pile of red chilies in front of him which he'd just bought. And he was picking them up and eating them one at a time. And his eyes were flushed, he was bright red. There were tears streaming, his nose was running. He was obviously in a lot of discomfort. 
And his friends came up to him and said, Mullah, Mullah, what are you doing? He said, I'm eating these chilies. He picked it up and ate another one. And his whole body shuddered with the, with the heat and the, the pain of it. And he coughed and spluttered and they said, Mullah, Mullah, we know you're eating these chilies. Why are you eating these chilies? He said, I keep hoping to find a sweet one. And I kind of think it illustrates how we are a lot of the time. It's like we sense that there's something not quite satisfying, but we think if we just do a bit more of what we've already done, if we just keep going, then just around the corner we're going to get to that place where suddenly it's all going to be sweet. But maybe that's not the nature of experience. Maybe experience in itself is not designed to do that for us just as chilies aren't designed to be sweet. No matter how much we hope and pray and how patient we are with them, the nature of chilies is hot. Likewise, the nature of experience is that it changes, that it comes and goes. And it cannot give us lasting satisfaction because of that. And each moment of our life actually speaks to us of that truth. But because we don't really pay careful attention to it a lot of the time, we don't really understand that very well. And it's really important that we do understand it. Because understanding, without dismissing or condemning our life at all, we actually need to honour our life, that's really important. But equally to honour the degree to which we feel it to be not satisfying or authentic for us. That may be a greater or a lesser degree, but for most of us it's part of, or it's an aspect of our experience. And to the degree that that is so, to really ask ourselves, what are we doing with our life? What's really important to me? And, and perhaps this is more important, is What can I, or how can I respond to that reality? Because it's really easy to acknowledge a certain sense of disconnection or dissatisfaction or a lack of authenticity, and yet very easy to kind of not really know how to, or be willing to take the risk of responding to that circumstance. When I was working in the only, first and only really regular job I ever had in New Zealand in a pretty high-powered sort of office environment, I realised I really didn't like it. I didn't want to be doing it. It didn't suit me. And yet I couldn't quite leave it because it gave security and the promise of a career and all those sort of things that we think are going to do it for us, or I did at the time. And I was kind of torn between wanting to leave and to really seek for something that felt more meaningful to me and at the same time being terrified of that prospect, not knowing what that would entail. And quite unexpectedly as a result of a 
routine surgery that went rather tragically wrong, my best friend died over a course of months, very slowly and painfully. And it was quite a wake-up for me. It was quite a shock. We were both in our early 20s. One didn't expect that sort of thing to happen. And painful and grievous as it was to my heart that my friend was lost in a way and I couldn't really understand how it had happened. It was actually a profound gift to me which I remain to this day eternally grateful to him for. And that it said to me really clearly, do it now. Because you can't rely on being able to do it later. Whatever it might be. To actually bring one's life into alignment with what one feels to be most important is not something we can rely on having the luxury of being able to do later when we've sorted everything else out that we think we need to. That's not to say we need to throw our life up in the air, abandon everything and start again or sort of wander off to Asia as was the case for me. But that to actually have a sense of wishing to consciously engage with our life, with the deeper questions that it asks us, and to sense that the time for this engagement is now, because there is no other time. Being on retreat as we are here, without needing to seek them at all, just sustaining our application to the simple practices of being present and sitting and walking and standing as we go through the day. It can be that without seeking them, the, the questions of our life come to us, perhaps formed in words and ideas quite specifically. What am I doing? Now, sometimes, of course, you know, what am I doing here? It's not really the deeper question of our life. It's all like, get me out of here, but what am I doing here? This is too difficult or cold or confusing or why do we have to sit in straight lines and follow silly schedule on the board? All of that kind of, what am I doing here? But more a deeper sense of, yeah, what's my life given to? This precious thing. And when these questions come to us, as they may in, in such form of words, or maybe just as a, a sense of urgency or a sense of interest or a, just a sense of possibility that kind of opens our eyes more widely. That we realize we want to look into this life. We want to see it. We want to know it more deeply than we have thus far. And it's not a question, but more a, a movement or a sense of touching into something deeper in our being. We don't need to seek answers to the questions. We don't need to decide what I have to do or where I need to make the change or how. We don't need to find the answer to the, to the deeper currents of our life that move us or the resolution. But it is important to make space for, to really acknowledge and to honour their presence in our being. Often it is the very question itself that holds its own answer. 
and we don't need to speak for an answer but actually just really feel into the question to really know to really honour and acknowledge that our life holds profound questions for us and yet there's always I think a curious mixture of kind of excitement and sense of being drawn towards touching into that condition of being those places of our heart and mind that run deeper that are closer to our depth, our core and at the same time there's a a kind of a resistance or I don't know if I really want to enter that territory a sense of ooh, this could be a little sharp or tight or just scary because it's unfamiliar and we can kind of have this thing and it's a, a common tendency for us and in our lives to kind of want to escape to get out of here you know, let me out of here let me out of this situation because it's impinging on me it's bringing up things within me that I don't want to see or don't want to feel or don't believe that I can cope with because it seems like it might be too much for me you know, we can come at the beginning of the retreat someone, you know, speaking at the front says, there's nowhere to go and we think, oh that's nice what a relief and after we've been here a day we think, nowhere to go oh no you know, I want to go somewhere. Surely there's somewhere I can go. But there is what we could call a great wisdom. A wisdom of no escape that asks us to not desert our heart. To not abandon our life. I was a few years ago leading a walking retreat. We, we have a, a retreat for a week in France where we are walking in the foothills of the Pyrenees. And on this particular year, it rained. And it rained, and it rained. And we were outdoors with tents, walking all day outside, sitting, meditation, cross-legged outside, walking, not back and forth, but in one direction with our pack, cooking on an open fire. About a dozen of us out there in the wilderness. On that first day we kind of thought, oh, we'll clear up tomorrow. You know, it's October, south of France, should be all right. Second day, hadn't cleared up. Pretty cold, it was pretty wet. For summer, it was getting kind of miserable. And it was really interesting, we spoke. At the end of the second day, we gathered in a little shelter that we managed to find. And uh, we were just speaking about what was going on for everybody. and. One of the women spoke, I thought, rather to the point of the situation. She said, you know, after two days I was so wet, so cold, I thought, you know, I just want to get out of here. I want to leave. But then I realised, out there walking in the wilderness, where could I go? Because, you know, she could have walked back, I guess, if she could have found her way, but it was two days from anywhere, basically. And there was no way she could leave unless the rest of us came with her. And yet that sense of wanting to leave and yet there's nowhere to go. That's kind of like our life. Because although sometimes we're fortunate enough and privileged enough and in the West we've accumulated enough resources 
to be much more capable than ever before in the history of human beings of controlling and adjusting our outer environment to keep it comfortable for us. And, of course, rather sadly, we've accumulated that power through resources that therefore have left others with somewhat reduced capacity to take care of their own circumstance. And yet, in that kind of becoming very familiar with being able to control our environment, you know, turn a thermostat up, get another blanket, as we were out there in the, in the, in the Pyrenees. There's no thermostat, there were no more blankets than what we were carrying. It's kind of interesting to face that situation. But actually it's just like our circumstance right here because although we can to a certain amount, to a certain degree, adjust things around us and we think therefore why not? Of course it's fine, a certain amount of adjusting it's, it's human, it's natural. We don't have to give it up entirely. But while to some extent we can adjust our circumstances or escape from our circumstances. We cannot escape our mind. And this is important to understand. We cannot escape our mind. And our mind seems to be caught up in a habitual pattern of reactivity that is actually remarkably unpleasant and unsatisfying to be caught in. And our mind reacts to its experiences when it, we're not conscious and we're not awake, quite simply in one of three directions. When the experience is pleasant, the mind reacts by wanting it, by wanting more of it, by wanting to repeat it, by wanting to figure out how we got this one so we can keep it or get it again. It reacts to the unpleasant experience by not liking it, by wanting to get rid of it, by saying this is not okay, by fearing that it will ever happen again, by trying to figure out what caused it so we can stop it right now and prevent it ever reoccurring. And it reacts to the neutral experience that's neither pleasant nor unpleasant by usually being quite uninterested in it, doing nothing to me, got nothing for me, I can't be bothered, and wandering off in search of something else. This is a lot of what it does when it's not with the breath. We're either in pursuit of the pleasant, seeking to avoid the unpleasant, or simply disconnecting from what is rather neutral or in between. And as a result of this condition in which much of the time we are driven unconsciously into reacting to our experience, and the very condition of that wanting is, is deeply painful to our being, or that not wanting, or that disinterest is a way in which it dishonours our life by grasping hold of it or pushing it away and disconnects us from where we are because we become lost in the mind that is in pursuit or in retreat from an experience. We become lost in that mind, unconscious and disconnected from what's actually happening. When we're not conscious, when we're not awake, when we're not present, this is just what's happening most of the time. And we experience our life as really unsatisfactory, as kind of not having a real depth of meaning, bereft of something at its core. When we live our life like that, 
because we're not inhabiting it. Because the reactivity of the mind is constantly, again and again, kind of pushing us, impelling us to leave, compelling us to be lost in its unconscious processes. Our attention drawn into the dwelling, the fantasy, the planning, the anxiety, the craving, the fear, the confusion, and all of that that goes on and on. So we're asked to look at this condition of mind, to see it as it is. In meditation, it's really kind of the first insight of insight meditation to see that our mind doesn't do what we tell it to. We can't just tell it to be peaceful or else we just come along, we'd all say be peaceful, then we'd be peaceful. Make it a lot easier, wouldn't it? But it's not like that. We need to be interested in it if we're really interested in our life. And I think we are interested in our life. Profoundly and deeply interested in it, or else we wouldn't be here. The Buddha once said, I know of no single thing more conducive to suffering than an untrained mind. And I know of no single thing more conducive to happiness and peace than a well trained mind. And so, the path of Dharma, which is the, the word in Buddhist, the Buddhist language for the teachings of the Buddha and the way things are, in the practice of Dharma, we begin with a, a training of heart and mind. And in, again, in the, in the Buddhist language, heart-mind as our kind of core essential experience is not separated out but seen as being very much interacting and interdependent with each other. To see that we, we need to learn to actually connect with where we are. Difficult as it is, it's not like we can alter in a moment or in a day the habit of a lifetime. If we've let the mind run wild, it's the whole existence, then it's going to take a little while before it settles down. It's not just going to happen overnight or the snap of our fingers because we've just decided it would be nice. And yet, coming back again and again to where we are, bringing ourselves back, it has a capacity for, it's like bringing a light into focus, the beam of a torch without a lens. It just kind of spreads out everywhere and you can't really see anything, you just get a vague glow. If you go into a room with a torch that has no lens, you just kind of see sort of shadows around, you like the bump into things. Kind of like our life, and we're not really focused and attentive. We don't see things clearly, we bump into them. It's called suffering. But when we actually start to train the mind, when we start to focus the attention just by choosing a particular thing and bringing our attention to it again and again, coming back as many times, and it could be hundreds of times, it's fine. But just every time we come back, it's like the mind becomes more focused. So ultimately it's like there's a clear lens on the light of awareness. So that it can focus and see clearly. So that we can direct it towards a particular experience and see clearly what is going on. This comes with time and with practice. 
the ability to see things the way they are. And therefore to negotiate them appropriately, skillfully, wisely. And we can see this perhaps in the way we might envision the training of a, of a puppy. A small creature that we've taken into our care. And yet we know that if we, if we, just, if we don't take any tra- give it any training, it won't actually have a very happy life and neither will we with it. So we need to train it in what is useful. And it's like training it to walk. What we say to the puppy, heal. And training it to follow us. We say to it, heal. It wanders off. So we bring it back and we say, heal. Now if it wanders off and we thrash it with a stick. We wouldn't do that, would we, I hope? But sometimes our mind, we say, pay attention, it wanders off. We say, what do you do that for? Oh no, look at this, this is hopeless. I'm giving up. I can't do this. But what about, oh look where you've gone. Oh. If the puppy wanders off, we say, oh, get where you've gone. What are you doing? Okay, come back. If the mind that wanders off, oh, come back. To kind of have a vast degree of patience and tolerance. And this is the training of the heart that goes together with the training of the mind. In that process of coming back again and again. And really coming more fully into a quality of presence that is the, the essential core of our life, in fact coming more and more into this, we quite naturally start to alter our way of being and the quality of our lives through the process of becoming more present. Cultivating beneficial qualities of heart and mind, this is not an easy thing to do. It is remarkably challenging and yet much more difficult to live our life without that capacity. Much more difficult to live our life unconsciously, driven by the conditioned habits of mind, pushed and pulled by the whims of our reactivity and the unpredictable, uncontrollable circumstances of our world. Difficult as it is, it is possible for us. And this is important to remember. We can do this. If we can remember to come back and begin again. Just once. Just now. That's all we ever have to do. We don't have to get it right. We don't have to stay present. We don't have to be always forgiving and patient. If we find ourselves reacting, that's the place to begin again. Can we just acknowledge that and start from that place? we find ourselves lost, can we just begin again? Start from that place. And we can, because we've all done it. You can do this. With patience. With diligence. With kindness and care. Heart actually naturally inclined towards being present, towards being open, towards being connected. It's its actual core inclination, but it gets layered over and buried by so much reactivity, so much pressure, so much so much 
just comfort at times, but we're not quite always sure. We trust that wish to be open, that wish to be connected. And yet learning to trust our life as it is. This life is the only one we have. And it is, in fact, a precious gift. To receive that gift wholeheartedly. To take what is happening and how we are with that. In each and every moment, this is the place we can wake up. There is no other place we can wake up. There aren't better conditions for it than where we are right now. And as that natural inclination of our being develops, deepens, and it comes steadily, though slowly, through our practice, we can start to sense that the real satisfaction that we look for, that we yearn for so deeply in our lives, that the peace and the, and the sense of a vital connection with truth is not dependent on being able to control our experience, is not dependent on what those experiences are, whether pleasant, unpleasant or neutral but actually much more determined by and dependent upon the quality of presence with which we come to meet our experience. The way we actually engage with our life is what gives the quality to our life. What happens is what happens. Sometimes we can influence it, sometimes we can't. And we learn to dance and move gracefully within that. But fundamentally, the quality of our being, the quality of our presence and our capacity to wholeheartedly embrace and embody the truth of our experience. This is actually where the richness of our life is revealed. This is not something that comes later or at the end of our practice, at the end of our retreat, the end of our life but it's very much about what is here and now and coming to know that for ourselves in a rather ordinary and yet extraordinary way all that we look for all that we could ever find is to be found, is to be known, is to be discovered in the midst of our life right here And this we can do for ourselves, each one of us. Could we just sit quietly for a minute or two, please?
นโยบีถ้าปายดี deeper questions of your life the deeper possibility may you all come to know for yourself through your own practice the depth of presence and peace that is right here may all beings live in peace Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.